Hey everyone, this is the Philosophy Junkie, and I welcome you today to philosophize alongside me. If you end up liking this episode or any other episode on this podcast, check out our website linked down below. You can find summaries and even transcripts for each and every show there, and also a link to support us. Visit us on Instagram and Twitter at the rate the Philosophy Junkie and at the rate the Phil Junkie. Furthermore, if you're feeling generous today, you can visit our page on patreon.com/thephilosophyjunkie and consider donating money for some additional content. Just a disclaimer before we begin though. I would recommend you bear in mind that our journey won't be one of name dropping, but rather be focused on thoughts, ideologies and beliefs. We will focus more on the what rather than the who of things. Thank you for choosing this podcast to fill your time of the day today and I really hope you enjoy the show. Yes, we're halfway through this. But we've barely begun with the real questions. We've barely drawn the most intriguing of inferences. We've barely philosophized. What are we going to discuss today? Well, the 5th volume of the Republic. But I thought we were done with the ideal city. So what's next? Socrates and Plato, what do you have in store for us? Well, did you forget about the philosopher kings, the theory of forms and feminism? You know, you're probably going to shut down this episode in a couple of minutes to do something else, but I will stop you right there. What I plan on talking about is probably the reason why we are all still a part of society, why we interact, and maybe even the very reason of our existence. In no shape or form is or was Plato bang on right about everything but in his context he was a literal god every form of philosophy has started because of this book we have calculus because leibniz was a rationalist law exists because of the talk about justice and ethics in this book the very concept of a society is based on ideals taken from this book i think we can all agree now that this book is an important read so where does the fifth volume begin Well, it picks up right where the fourth one left off. And I don't think Socrates is done talking about the luxurious city he started blabbering about in the previous volumes. Polymarchus and Adeimantus realize that they need to keep Socrates for a longer time at the supper table as they still all haven't discussed anything about the family life of the citizens of this hypothetical city. It's an important part, is it not? After all, don't we all say everything starts first at home? Socrates begins talking about the fact that women and men are an equal part of the society in their regards to conducting a particular job. This is where feminism becomes a possibility in society, birth of feminism. He says that a man and a woman should be treated equally, and if a man or a woman is not suited for the same job, they should not be assigned to that job. However, there should be no distribution of jobs on the basis of sex. Still, Every time they talk about how a man and a woman can have the same traits for a job, they mention that biologically women are weaker. However, many studies conducted today have shown to be women to be more resilient, stronger, robust, and tough. So they were working on a false premise back then. Socrates further tells people at the supper table that for them, an idea is viable only when it is practicable. or doable and is the most beneficial or the best for the society after further deliberations they arrived at the decision women will be taught art of war guardianship music and gymnastics just like the men but they didn't stop there they only wanted the best of the best 
to be the guardians so one thing to note is socrates's idea to remove all attachments from the lives of these guardians he says all those are to belong to all these men in common and no woman is to live privately with any man and the children in their turn will all be in common and neither will a parent know his offspring nor a child his parent this was to ensure that the guardians are less vulnerable and to remove attachments from the lives of these guardians but regardless of that it is a reiteration of the fact that they are trying to dehumanize the guardians for effective functioning but we do that too today don't we we separate our professional lives from our personal ones and we know of a lot of people in our lives that suppress their personal lives to expand their professional ones don't we this is exactly what plato is trying to achieve a segregation the fact is that their social life and personal life is a part of their professional life furthermore they said that they will only allow the best kids to survive the others would be in a way discarded how cruel is that socrates says the proper officers will take the offspring of the good parents to the pen or fold and there they will deposit them with certain nurses to dwell in a specific separate quarter but the offspring of the inferior or of the better when they chance to be deformed will be put away in some mysterious unknown place as they should be yes he said that must be done if the breed of the guardians is to be kept pure this clearly shows something they were ready to sacrifice individual happiness of these guardians and their children to improve the state of their society this is exactly what we discussed earlier didn't we the happiness of the state might not refer to individual happiness of every citizen and socrates and plato were okay with that they also prescribed the appropriate ages for men and women to breed for men it was 25 to 55 whereas for women it was 20 to 40 any child produced out of this time frame would be illegitimate unholy and unauthorized and either be killed or not receive proper nourishment albeit an effective way to control the population and ensure that the population lacks nothing as only the best of the best of parents would be able to give birth given the restrictions he is removing the very things that make a human a human is he not After so many unethical proposals Socrates says something very familiar to us he says our rulers will find a considerable dose of falsehood and deceit necessary for the good of their subjects we were saying that the use of all these things regarded as medicines might be of advantage this is deception after he has already proposed the noble lie as we saw in this on the previous episode you see what Socrates is proposing don't you He is ready to lie to his citizens just for the smooth functioning of the state. That too, he is assuming that the state would function smoothly. He is ready to dehumanize the guardians, but isn't this today's state? The government lies to us about so many things. Corruption is raging. They dehumanize the military and the police. Well, guess we are living in the republic after all. See, Socrates is bringing about a lot of things that would have been considered extremely bizarre back then, and it shows that even though his ideologies might seem outdated to us, they were way ahead of his time. He was literally preaching for the same equality as we were about a hundred years ago. In some places, we still haven't achieved that equality. Imagine that he was talking about the same equality twenty-five hundred years ago, and we still. don't have proper feminism in this world with this we end the conversation about the communal behavior 
of the people of this hypothetical city the conversation now shifts about how unity is the greatest good and the disintegration of the society is the greatest evil socrates has already mentioned something similar before and so this shows us that even though he's progressing within the republic and evolving as we go along the book he is still holding on to certain ideologies that remain very fundamental to him to achieve unity he says it is important to make sure that all pleasures and pains are similar for every citizen of the city that makes sense right socrates go, goes ahead and says that the best governed city is the one where all citizens are happy or sad in unison now we have seen socrates compare the city to a person multiple times and here he does it again he says when but a finger of one is heard the whole frame drawn towards the soul as a center and forming one kingdom under the ruling power therein feels the hurt and sympathizes all together with the part affected and we say that the man has a pain in his finger and the same expression is used about any other body part which has sensation of pain or suffering or of pleasure at the elevation of suffering so basically he is saying that just how we concentrate our whole body on one injury we must concentrate on one expression throughout the whole city when something happens is he preaching for equality well i don't think so because of how he has argued things before this is he somehow pointing towards communism which did not even exist back then it did not exist for what about 2300 years after plato and socrates could be I mean ideas have no timeline do they all right let me ask you something if i re- remove all attachments from your community and control what you feel by externally manipulating your connections and people who are a part of your life would you feel sad when someone dies of course you would but you would not feel as sad as you would have felt if they were a part of your family but think about this what if every citizen was a part of your family according to the government We often see a lot of people refer to the citizens of their country as brothers and sisters or just family members in general. Where does this idea of brotherhood, familyhood, sisterhood stem from? Well, Socrates says that one way to remove any segregation in society is to remove all the attachment. However, he feels that attaching everyone with everyone would also give us the same result. If everyone was your brother, sister, father, mother, relative, Would you not feel bad whenever something bad happened to someone and happy when something good happened to someone? Well, yes, you would. This is how Socrates thought he could bring about unity in his hypothetical state. So, when you call your someone your brother, you must treat them like their actual brother, right? Only then would the city be in harmony. If you treat the people of the city as members of your family then injustice violence disintegration conflict etc etc would not exist they are ready to redefine what the father or mother or what a brother what a sister is and remove the possessive pronouns mine and not mine so instead of saying my so and so is doing badly or my so and so is doing well people will say he is doing badly and she is doing well how will that help if you remove the individual stake in a particular thing and make it a part of society then would the individual not become a more involved party in the society didn't we mention this before socrates is indirectly going for a communist state and he doesn't even know it because while well, communism as a concept did not exist back then 
So the premise of the on which the fifth book is built is that the auxiliaries, that is the guardians, must share their women and children. This came up in the last book, but it was also a small and minor suggestion that too not required to be focused upon. But as we progressed, I think we can say that it was barely minor and that the functioning of this hypothetical city is based on the sharing of women and children among the guardians. Using his Socratic method, Socrates has proved to Adiamantus and Glaucon that the auxiliaries must share their women and children in order for society to have a good community, have good community foundations. So this is the best for the city, right? As he said. But is it practicable? Well, let's find out. See, considering that all members of the city would be considered family members of each other, there would be no fights, everyone would eat together, no property would be owned by an individual, no lawsuits will be there because everyone will be living in peace and harmony, no loans for the education of their children, no extra money to be made for the household, no concept of rich, poor, etc. So it will be a pretty peaceful city, would it not? Weirdly, Socrates now shifts to talk about war. We're done with peaceful city, how communal life should be. Now we're just randomly on to the topic of war. He says that the kids will accompany their parents to the battlefield when they're of appropriate age. I'm guessing around 14-ish. And they will learn the best ways of war as they're the future of their nation. He further says that those who do anything cowardly during the war, like throwing away weapons and leaving posts to run away from death on the battlefield, will be demoted from a guardian to a farmer or a craftsman. If a soldier shows extreme bravery in war, he or she will be rewarded with parties and accolades. Soldiers who died on the battlefield would be awarded with the honour of being recognised as the golden race, that is the race of the rulers if you remember. Then they move to the discussion about prisoners of war, in a sense, enemies to be more vague. They are okay with enslavement until and unless the opposition is not Greek. However, they disregard any sort of disrespect on the bo dead body of their enemies and agree that the enemies must be allowed to take the dead bodies of their own. All of this is obviously nothing new. We all know that this is how things function now as well. Now, favourite time, Socrates again lies. He has been trying to build the city with lies, hasn't he? Well, the uh, another one is when he proposes, and I'm quoting here, and therefore when Hellenes, which are ancient Greeks, fight with barbarians and barbarians fight with Hellenes, they will be described by us as being at war when they fight, and by nature, enemies. And this kind of antagonism should be called war. When, but when Hellenes, ancient Greeks, fight with one another, we shall say that Helen, Hellas, which is Greece, is then in a state of disorder and discord, they being by nature friends, and such enmity is to be called discord. You see what he's doing here, right? Like, just go back, listen to it again if you weren't able to understand, and let's see what he's trying to do here. He's trying to promote the fact that we should try and form a city that maintains peace within Greece, whereas it is against states other than Greece because Athens is, well, a city in Greece. He is again trying to manipulate the citizens. I'm not saying that it won't reap benefits or it would not harm the citizens. I'm merely analysing what is present in front of me. But what are we even discussing? Aren't we supposed to be discussing the practicability of this proposition? Damn it, Socrates, stop making us go in circles. 
Glaucon points this out and asks Socrates to not divert from the topic. Socrates says that it might not be possible to show a society that functions exactly like they have prescribed, but Socrates might be able to render a city that is closest to their prescribed fundamentals. So, what is this one thing? What is the, this condition? This condition is the most famous line in all of political philosophy. This condition is philosophers must be rulers and rulers must be philosophers in this hypothetical city. Boom! Mic drop time. But we were blind. He has been setting this up all along. Who knows the most should rule and philosophers know the most, so they must rule, etc, etc. But ask yourself, who is a philosopher? The word philosopher comes from the two words philine, meaning to love, and sophos, meaning wise. These are Greek words. Let's combine them. We get lover of wisdom. Well, Glaucon asked Socrates the same thing and got the same answer. Socrates says, a philosopher is the lover of the vision of truth, which is pretty similar, so we'll ignore that. Glaucon and Socrates go on to have a pretty interesting conversation, which would be a bit weird to go to her. So instead, I will have the same conversation with you right now. Let me ask you something. Beautiful and ugly are opposites of each other, right? You will say, yeah, then they are two things. And so beautiful is one thing and ugly another thing. You'll repeat yourself. Well, yes. And similarly, of just and unjust, good and evil and every other class, the same remark holds. Taken singly, each one of them is one, but from the various combinations with actions and things and with another, they are seen in all sorts of lights and appear many. You say, very true. You'll further say, so, sight lovers and those who admire beauty might also be philosophers, don't you think? No, you won't actually say that, but I have to imagine that for me to arrive at conclusions. Shush. I'll say... The lovers of sounds and sight are, as I conceive, fond of fine tones and colours and forms and all the artificial products that are made out of them. But their mind is incapable of seeing or loving absolute beauty. You'll ask me, tell me more. See, when someone is able to distinguish between the real and the copy, that person is wide awake, right? So their thoughts, as they represent the real truth, can be taken as knowledge. But if a person is unable to distinguish between the dissimilar objects and is unable to separate true beauty from just perceived beauty, you might say that that person is a dreamer. That person's thoughts are mere beliefs and not knowledge. That makes sense, right? I think it's obviously an exaggerated argument, especially because he says dreamer and all, but it's a pretty plausible one otherwise. You see where this conversation is going, don't you? What is knowledge? Scratch that. Imagine this. You're sitting in a hut in ancient Greece, wearing your robe and outside your window, you can watch sacrifices being made to a new goddess, Pendus. And inside this hut, you're laying down principles that will govern the world till its very demise. That's how powerful Socrates was intellectually. Or should I say Plato? He says that either you have a belief about an object or you have knowledge about it. You cannot possibly possess both knowledge and belief for that same object. 
This is where the theory of forms comes in. A belief is about the multiple form an object takes, while knowledge is about the single form of an object, that true form of the object. What's the opposite of knowledge, if I ask you right now? Is it not ignorance? One can also say that the opposite of knowledge is innocence. However, think about this. The child is innocent but is not opposing knowledge in any manner. Rather, a child is curious to gain knowledge. So, when you're opposing knowledge or ignoring it purposely, then you are ignorant. Ignorance is a block in the path of knowledge. You can also say that ignorance is opaqueness, whereas knowledge is clarity. But then, where does belief lie? Let's let's get mathematical. Let the clarity be x. Therefore, knowledge having complete clarity is x and ignorance having complete opacity is minus x, right? Is belief not a part of this section on the line from x to minus x? That is, is belief more opaque than ignorance or clearer than knowledge? Well, not at all. Rather, it is opaquer than knowledge and clearer than ignorance. Therefore, in mathematical terms, belief belongs in the interval of minus x to x. Boom! This is for all those hating on philosophy for being a shit field. We rock. So even though this conversation is about knowledge, we're actually heading towards the theory of forms. So belief is both knowledge and ignorance. Similarly, something can be beautiful and ugly simultaneously. Like a painting can be ugly and beautiful simultaneously. But if a thing is carrying two forms, are both the forms present in an equal proportion? Can that painting that we just talked about be more beautiful than it is ugly? According to Socrates, yes. He says that the forms that objects take can be present on the spectrum and exist as free-flow concepts. Very modern of him, isn't it? A lot of people are trying to get things like sexuality and other things to be regarded as a free-flow concept and it is hard to push that notion into society. Imagine what Socrates faced back in the 400 BCE when he suggested such a thing. Now, we all know that almost nothing exists in purely one form. Every coin has two sides to it. The sides don't have to be equal in nature, but neither of them are absent, as the masses believe that every object has two forms to it. They are all trusting their belief and not knowledge. Now, just like a philosopher is someone with love for the truth, a philodox or a philodoxer is someone who loves his own beliefs and opinions. With this analogy, we come to an end to book five. Book five was probably the longest, most complex and dense of the whole of the Republic. Therefore, we won't be working on book six today. But I will leave you with a whole fruit basket for thought. Do you think it is okay to keep lying to your people for a peaceful state and to create a social hierarchy yourself instead of one getting formed on its own? Think about it. I know that many of you might not be listening to get started into philosophy on a very academic level, but read uh, John Rawls to get a better sense of justice in a society. After reading him, try to connect to what Plato has to say. Do you agree with the rules of war that Plato presents us? Is there something missing in the fine print? Is he right 
about belief being uh, between ignorance and knowledge where does innocence lie then is it between x and minus x is it at the neutral point too many questions wow well you think about it and keep on philosophizing with or without me i'll catch you guys in the next episode